Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Here's a brain bender for you. Can you define what is time? It's not quite as cut and dry as the question might seem on the surface. Because at least according to one of the smartest people who ever lived, the concept of time changes based on a number of circumstances. None other than Albert Einstein once posited that there is no absolute time. Einstein theorized that time changes with the motion of a particular observer. We tend to treat time as a linear concept, with one event leading to another. But in Einstein's theory, the past, present, and future need have no fixed status. And that, in theory, they can be perceived in varying order. I know, trippy, right? Einstein's special theory of relativity draws no conclusions about seeing the future. In fact, Einstein didn't seem very interested in the concept. But if Einstein was right, and being Einstein, odds are he was then the idea that we can see the future might not be so crazy after all. But if seeing the future is at all possible, then this calls into question the nature of time itself. Because if the future can be seen, then it must already exist. This, of course, then brings into question bigger philosophical questions of predestination and free will. One evening in Paris in 1788, the Prince de Beauvau held a dinner party for members of high society. It was a swanky gala, and to get on the guest list, you had to be someone pretty special. The prince was considered to be a scholarly man with a wry sense of humor, and he insisted that he surround himself only with like-minded people who were able to match wits with him. Writers, lawyers, members of the French Academy, ladies of title. All the sort of people who were known for their conversational gift of gab. Among those in attendance that evening was a writer named Jacques Cazat, who had made a name for himself with the publication of his occult romance, Le Diable Amoureux, The Devil in Love. The dinner was a smashing success. The food was exquisite. We don't know the exact menu, but being this was France and catering to the wealthy elite, we can guess it was probably pretty good. That evening the wine flowed freely, which helped the conversation along as well. They talked about everything, sex, religion, politics. Soon the conversation turned from extolling the virtues of the French philosopher Voltaire to the very real possibility that revolution may soon sweep through France. This was one of those ideas that everyone scoffed at. The thought that the peasants might rise up against the wealthy was ludicrous. They were just peasants, after all. And they were too far below the wealthy and powerful to be considered a threat. To borrow a line from Mel Brooks, the peasants were revolting. Everyone had a good laugh about how ridiculous the idea of revolt was. Everyone, that is, except for Jacques Cazat. Cazat turned out to be quite the party pooper. When he spoke up, suddenly all the laughter in the room died down. He told everyone that he had a special talent for seeing the future. 
and he assured all the guests in attendance that evening that the French Revolution was coming and that it would directly affect each and every one of them. This in and of itself wasn't particularly revelatory. A lot of people back then had been saying that civil unrest in the lower classes was building to something big. But Kazat took things a step further and went on to tell each of the people in attendance exactly what would happen to them in precise, gory detail. Monsieur de Condorcet would die prone on the stone floor of a prison cell after consuming poison to avoid the executioner. Monsieur de Chamfort would cut his veins 22 times with a razor, although he would not actually die until many months later. Monsieur de Nicolai would die on the scaffold, as would another party-goer named Bailey. It was at this point that a man named La Harpe, a free-thinker and a staunch atheist, finally stood up and objected. This sort of talk was madness, and he would hear none of it. But Kazat responded by telling La Harpe that he had a special fate in store for him. Rather than dying, he was going to repent his atheist ways and become a Christian. By now, everyone was clearly uncomfortable and starting to look for the exits. But Kazat wasn't done. He went on to describe the fates of several other people in attendance that evening, adding that not even the king and queen of France would be spared during the coming revolution. The guests left that night feeling more than a little unnerved, but that was just the beginning. Within a year, the French Revolution did begin, precisely as Jacques Cazat predicted. And what's even more disturbing is that every single one of the predictions he made about his fellow dinner guests that evening came true. Right down to La Harpe renouncing his atheism and joining the church. But there was one thing even Cazat failed to predict. His own death. In 1792, Kazat himself would be dragged through the streets in order to face the guillotine. Stories about people who claim to be able to predict the future have been around for practically as long as there has been written history. And whereas it's easy to write many of these stories off as simple coincidence, when you hear some of the details of these stories, it might just call into question your concept of time itself. I'm Nate Hale, and I predict you'll keep listening to this show. And this is The Conspirators. The ancient world was one that was full of uncertainty. As a result, people would often turn to their gods looking for answers. In the ancient Babylonian epic of Gilgamesh, a story tells of a dream the hero had about an upcoming battle. His mother, a goddess, told Gilgamesh that he and an enemy will fight, then become fast friends, all of which came to pass. A legendary Sumerian king named Amendarana was said to have set up some of the earliest rules for prophecy, The only people who were allowed to come up with prophecies were approved professionals who worked specifically in service of the monarchy. In ancient Egypt, a priestly caste arose whose job was to interpret dreams that contained messages from the gods. The Christian Bible, of course, contains numerous references to individuals who claimed to receive divine messages about the future. In ancient Greece, there was no better place to go to get your fortune told than the Temple of the Oracle of Delphi. From the 6th century BC through the 4th century AD, the rich and famous from all over Greece traveled to Delphi looking for messages about the future. It was here that, according to legend, 
Oedipus learned that he was destined to murder his father and marry his mother. Alexander the Great is said to have gone to the temple and learned that he was destined to conquer the known world. The temple was believed to be the best place to go in order to contact the god Apollo, the most knowledgeable of all the gods. Visitors to the temple had to follow a strict set of rules in order to be allowed to speak to Apollo's representative here on earth, a high priestess known as Apithia. Of course, along with the many rules you had to follow, you also had to pay for the privilege of speaking to her as well. At the height of its fame, the temple at Delphi could cost the equivalent of two days' pay for the oracle service. Strangely, there might be a very earthly explanation for where the priestess obtained all her knowledge. One of the legends about the temple was that nine times throughout the year the Pythia would head down to the lowest chamber of the temple, and there she would inhale a sweet-smelling vapor that filled the chamber. After a while of breathing these vapors, she would enter a deep trance during which the gods spoke to her. Some modern archaeologists have suggested that the temple may have been built on geological fault lines, through which ethylene gas began seeping out. A person inhaling enough ethylene gas would fall into a trance-like state. The problem with this theory is that archaeologists who have studied the actual temple ruins haven't been able to detect any such vapors remaining in the air. If we jump ahead a few centuries, then we come to another name in history which has become practically synonymous with predicting the future. He was born Michel de Nostradamus, although his name would become Latinized into the version we're more familiar with today, Nostradamus. He came from a French-Jewish family that was forced to convert to Catholicism in 1496, a few years before he was born. Although popular culture would have us believe he spent his life sequestered away in a little room writing his fabled prophecies, he was actually something of a Renaissance man. He was a scholar and a medical student who got himself expelled from the University of Montpellier for performing forbidden work as an apothecary on the side. But Nostradamus refused to be held back by society's rules. When plague ravaged the land, Nostradamus went out into the French countryside and treated the sick villagers other doctors had left for dead. But the plague hit too close to home for Nostradamus, and his wife and children all died from the disease. After that, Nostradamus dropped out of the history books for about six years. It's believed that he may have gone on a pilgrimage throughout France and Italy during this time. He would have seen the world changing around him, and not necessarily for the better. The world Nostradamus would have walked through would have been one ravaged by plague and by war. Death was everywhere. When he finally returned to public life, he settled down to write his most famous book, Les Prophetes, a collection of 942 poetic quatrains that some people claim predict the future all the way up until the modern day. Most of Nostradamus's quatrains deal with major disasters. They speak about wars, floods, plagues, earthquakes, invasions, murders, droughts, and, some say, even the end of the world. In the days following 9-11, the number one internet search wasn't about terrorism or Osama bin Laden. It was for Nostradamus. Supporters of Nostradamus point to quatrains that they say predict the French Revolution, the Great London Fire, Napoleon's rise and fall, and even the rise of Adolf Hitler. But skeptics of Nostradamus point out that many of the quatrains people point to as evidence of his ability to see the future aren't actually based on the original texts. Rather, many of the quatrains we read today 
are translated and retranslated from other sources that change the wording and meaning over time. Skeptics say that hardcore believers have applied Nostradamus's quatrains to whatever historical event seems to fit, and that most of these quatrains are so vague they could be applied to any number of events. In fact, it's been revealed that some quatrains that were being circulated by email that seemed to predict the September 11th attacks weren't written by Nostradamus at all and were just an internet hoax. But although critics are quick to say that Nostradamus's quatrains are too vague to be taken seriously, there are a few that seem so oddly specific they do make you wonder. For example, there's one that says, The lost thing is discovered, hidden for many centuries. Pasteur will be celebrated almost as a godlike figure. This is when the moon completes her great cycle. But by other rumors, he shall be dishonored. In 1822, the French chemist and microbiologist Louis Pasteur discovered that the growth of microorganisms caused fermentation. He went on to invent the process of removing harmful bacteria that uses his name, pasteurization, thus saving untold millions of lives from death. He was also instrumental in inventing vaccines for rabies and anthrax. But in 1995, an author named Gerald Geisen published a book in which he revealed Pasteur incorporated a rival's work in order to make his anthrax vaccine functional. Thus, supporters of Nostradamus not only point out that the quatrain calls out Pasteur by name, but the scientist was dishonored just as Nostradamus predicted. In another of his quatrains, Nostradamus wrote that the blood of the just will be demanded of London, burnt by the fire in the year 66. This one seems to directly reference the Great Fire of London, which occurred in the year 1666. The massive inferno destroyed most of medieval London, and is estimated to have burnt the homes of approximately 70,000 of the city's 80,000 inhabitants. As for the rise of Adolf Hitler, supporters of Nostradamus point to two quatrains that they say directly reference the German dictator. From the depths of the west of Europe, a young child will be born of poor people. He who by his tongue will seduce a great troop. His fame will increase towards the realm of the east. And, Beasts ferocious with hunger will cross the rivers. The greater part of the battlefield will be against Hister. Into a cage of iron will the great one be drawn when the child of Germany observes nothing. Adolf Hitler was born to poor parents in Western Europe in 1889. His intense oratory skills helped him begin his rise to power following World War I, allowing Germany to become allied with Japan in the East. Whereas some people believe the name Hister to be a typo, others say it's actually a reference to the location where Hitler was born. The name Hister is also an old name for the Danube River, which was only a few miles away from Hitler's birthplace. But although critics are quick to discount the works of Nostradamus as being too vague to be believed, there have been other occasions where certain people have written stories that seem to predict the future with remarkable accuracy. In 1838, Edgar Allan Poe published his only full-length novel, The Narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym. The book was shredded by critics and sold terribly, causing even Poe himself to agree with critics and say it was a silly mistake. Although the book was still apparently good enough to later inspire Herman Melville to write Moby Dick. So maybe it wasn't quite as terrible as originally believed. Poe did one curious thing with his book, which was make a Blair Witch-style claim that it was based on actual events. This was only partially true, you see, because the true events it was supposedly based on hadn't actually occurred yet. 
One part of the novel details the wreck of a whaling ship at sea that leaves only four crewmen alive. As the four starving men drifted in their tiny lifeboat, they drew lots to see which one of them would be eaten. The poor, unfortunate soul who drew the short straw was a cabin boy named Richard Parker. Forty-six years later, in 1884, a yacht named the Mignonette left England headed for Australia. The Mignonette wasn't equipped for such a major voyage, so it came as no surprise to anyone when the boat ran into a storm and sank. Four crewmen managed to escape on the lifeboat, and just like in Poe's novel, the men struggled to find food. One of the crew, a 17-year-old man, fell overboard and made the terrible mistake of drinking some seawater to quench his thirst. They managed to haul him back on board, but by then his fate was sealed. He was dying, and everyone knew it. At first they considered drawing straws, but then decided there was no point since the young man was a goner anyway. The other three crewmen killed the 17-year-old by stabbing him in the throat with a penknife. Then they ate him. That young man's name was Richard Parker. One little aside, if the name Richard Parker sounds familiar to you, you may have read the book or seen the movie The Life of Pi, which details a shipwreck in which a young boy becomes trapped on a lifeboat with a tiger that the author named Richard Parker. Whereas the story of Poe's novel and the very real events that occurred nearly 50 years later are probably coincidence, that isn't the only time something that strange occurred in print. There once was an American author named Morgan Robertson who wrote a novella about the world's largest ocean liner that hit an iceberg and sank. Now you might think Robertson was writing about the Titanic, which would seem like the obvious conclusion, except the author's story appeared in print in 1898, 14 years before the RMS Titanic sank. Here's where things get really weird. Robertson's book was called Futility, or The Wreck of the Titan. Not only did he give his fictional ship a name, which is just a couple letters off from the very real ill-fated ocean liner, but he got most of the other details right with startling accuracy as well. Both ships were British-owned steel vessels, and both were said to be unsinkable. Both Robertson's Titan and the RMS Titanic were around 800 feet in length, and both sank after hitting an iceberg in the month of April in the North Atlantic at around midnight. The Titanic crashed into an iceberg 400 miles from Newfoundland while cruising at a speed of 25 knots. Robertson's fictional Titan crashed into an iceberg 400 miles from Newfoundland while cruising at a speed of 22.5 knots. Both the real Titanic and the fictional Titan didn't contain enough lifeboats for the people on board. Robertson's Titan only had 20 lifeboats, the Titanic had 24. Both ships carried roughly the same number of passengers, 2,500 for the Titan and 2,200 for the Titanic. Although later editions of the book would change it to 75,000 tons of displacement for the Titan, in the original 1898 edition, the boat had a displacement of 45,000 tons. The Titanic's displacement was 46,000 tons. Of course, after the Titanic sank, a lot of people began pointing out to Robertson the remarkable number of things he got right. The man swore to his dying day that he wasn't clairvoyant. Rather, he claimed, it was his extensive knowledge of ships and shipbuilding that allowed him to write his story. That still doesn't explain how he got the name right, though. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. (laughs) 
Chumba. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. In 1925, a U.S. Army Air Service general named Billy Mitchell returned from a trip to Asia with dire warnings for America. He wrote an intelligence report in which he predicted a future war between the United States and Japan. Okay, you say, that's not that odd. But Mitchell's report also said that this war would begin after a Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, followed by an attack on the Philippines on a Sunday morning. According to his report, the attack would commence with the bombardment of Ford Island, where Pearl Harbor was located at 7.30 a.m., with a further attack on Clark Field in the Philippines at 10.40 a.m. On Sunday, December 7, 1941, Japan attacked Pearl Harbor at 7.55 a.m., then followed up with an attack on Clark Field at 12.35 p.m. Pretty creepy, huh? After Nostradamus, one of the most famous prophets who ever lived was a man from Kentucky named Edgar Cayce. He was born in 1877 and he came to be known as the Sleeping Prophet because he dictated his predictions while he was in a trance. Unlike a lot of other so-called prophets, no one ever accused Casey of cashing in on his alleged powers. Although in life he was better known as a healer, Casey also made predictions about the future. He made more than 14,000 readings up until his death in 1945, during which it's claimed that he predicted, among other things, the Wall Street Crash of 1929 and the Second World War. Critics point out that predicting either of these things wasn't anything remarkable. Lots of economists were predicting an imminent stock market crash before it happened, along with a lot of people who had been expecting a second world war. Skeptics maintain that any accurate predictions Casey made about these catastrophes, or even a few other things like some earthquakes he called correctly, were nothing more than educated guesses and dumb luck. These are the sort of arguments most skeptics make about predictions of the future, that they're mostly a combination of simple coincidence or educated guesses. And to be fair, those are both valid points. We only tend to remember the predictions that come true. There have been plenty of so-called prophets who have made predictions about the future that didn't come true at all. Casey, for example, also predicted a massive earthquake that would shatter the western part of the United States in the year 2000, causing massive flooding in Japan and changing the coastlines of Europe forever. All of which, as you're probably aware, never happened. Casey further undermined his credibility when he made several predictions about the fabled lost city of Atlantis. Casey claimed that many of the subjects of his psychic readings were reincarnations of ancient Atlanteans, and he also predicted that the fabled sunken city would rise from the sea in the 1960s. Supporters of Casey point to the discovery of an underwater rock formation known as the Bimini Wall that was discovered off the coast of North Bimini Island in 1968. The wall consists of a series of enormous squarish limestone blocks laid out in what appears to be a half-mile-long path. Whereas most geologists claim the Bimini Wall, or the Bimini Road as it's sometimes called, is nothing more than a natural rock formation, there are some people who believe it's a man-made structure, and one of the last remaining signs of the fabled lost city of Atlantis. Before we continue, I wanted to take a moment to tell you about our sponsor for this episode, HelloFresh. HelloFresh is a meal delivery service that shops, plans, and delivers step-by-step recipes and pre-measured ingredients so you can just cook, eat, and enjoy. When you sign up for HelloFresh, you get to choose your own delivery date so that you can work it into your own busy schedule. They have three plans to choose from, classic, veggie, or family, which saves you time since you won't have to worry about time-consuming meal planning or grocery shopping. 
All their family meals are fuss-free, and will appeal to even the pickiest eaters you know. Most meals can be completed in 30 minutes or less, and if you're really in a hurry, they also include a 20-minute meal on the classic menu when you really don't have the time. You can look forward to your HelloFresh box delivery as the highlight of your week, knowing dinner just got that much easier. I just got a new delivery and made some really tasty meals myself, including some delicious maple-glazed pork chops. The box came right to my doorstep, and the step-by-step recipe cards it came with made the cooking process as easy as can be. If you want to try HelloFresh out and experience the excitement of cooking, you can get $30 off your first order by simply visiting HelloFresh.com slash Conspirators30 and entering promo code Conspirators30 at checkout. Thanks again, and now back to my show. In the 1950s, there was a British songwriter and record producer named Joe Meek. He was considered something of a pioneer known for his quirky production techniques involving things like reverb, sampling, and multiple overdubbing. He wrote and produced the 1962 novelty hit, Telstar, for a group called the Tornadoes. His work on the song won him Britain's most prestigious songwriting award, the Ivor Novello Award. But along with all his accolades, Meek was also a very troubled man. He was a heavy drug user and a manic depressive who suffered from paranoid delusions that industry rivals were wiretapping him to steal his ideas. He was also something of an occult junkie, and one of his favorite pastimes was taking a tape recorder to local graveyards in order to record the spirits. One night in 1958, he was reading tarot cards with a group of friends when he received a terrible message. One of his musical idols was the American pop star Buddy Holly, and the cards told him that the singer was going to die on February 3rd. Meek tried desperately to get in touch with Buddy Holly, but the young pop star either never got the message or ignored Meek entirely. Considering February 3rd, 1958 came and went without incident, I think you can understand why. But then, just a year later, on February 3rd, 1959, Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and the Big Bopper boarded a small airplane that took off from Clear Lake, Iowa, bound for a show in Minnesota. As you probably know, Buddy Holly's plane crashed minutes after takeoff, killing everyone on board. Predictions of death often make for the most disturbing stories. They also make for some of the best documented stories as well, since it's possible to go back and confirm when an individual claimed to have predicted a major tragic event. There are few better examples than that of what happened in a small mining town in Wales in the 1960s. October 21st, 1966 was a cold, raining morning in Aberfem, Wales. The rain had been pouring unrelentingly for weeks. That morning, children left their homes bound for school amid a dense fog that blanketed the town. Mothers kissed their children and waved goodbye, completely unaware that for many of them, it would be the last time they ever got to do so. 240 students gathered that morning in the red brick Pant Glass Junior School for morning assembly. The children were excited because later they'd all be dismissed at midday for a half-term holiday. Only none of that would come to pass. Just minutes after being dismissed from the morning assembly, disaster struck. The town lay in the shadow of Mount Pleasant, atop which was the Merthyr Vale coal mine. The mine had been in decline the last few decades and the constant deluge of all the rain triggered a massive landslide that morning, devastating everything in its path. That included the Pant Glass Junior School. A thick black slurry of mud and rock buried the school within seconds. In total, 116 children, 
and 28 adults were crushed by the thick black muck. Over the months that followed, a psychiatrist named Dr. John Barker would collect together 76 letters from people who claimed to have predicted the disaster. Of those, 24 of them were written by people who shared their premonitions with others. One person reportedly dreamed the word Aberfan in giant letters. Others dreamed of thick, billowing smoke surrounding groups of children. But of all the letters Barker received, none was more disturbing or specific than one that told about a 10-year-old girl named Errol Mae Jones. Just one day before the disaster, Errol told her mother that she dreamed she went to school, only the building wasn't there anymore. Something black had come down and covered it all up. Errol died the next day in the landslide. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for listening. I have a few new Patreon supporters to thank. Thanks so much to Ashley, Jennifer, and the Farquhar for helping keep the lights on. Just a reminder, patrons get access to all sorts of rewards like stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and our patron-exclusive mini-episodes. Something else you can do to help support the show is rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Each one of your reviews helps us in the Apple rankings, makes it easier to spread the good word about the show. If you're not on Apple, not to worry. We're also on Stitcher, Google Play, and your favorite podcast app. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com. If you have any suggestions or feedback you want to give on the show, you can also reach out to us on our Facebook page, by Twitter, or by sending me an email at theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again, and I hope you'll join us again next time.